how do we help people bridge our love and pain for our world with a joyful path, a joyful way of being, but really acknowledging that we need to bring our tender hearts to all that is needing healing in the world. Welcome to the Heart Leader Podcast. I'm Amber Mikesell. And I'm Austin Yule. We are here to invite you into a new era of leadership. Join us as we dive deep into stories of powerful transformation, unlocked through self-love, compassion, and insights on healing the body and soul by blending science and spiritual wisdom. Start leading from the heart today. Visit theheartleaderpodcast.com. Hi, and welcome to the Heart Leader Podcast, where heart and mind align. I'm your host, Amber, and today I am joined by the amazing author and heart leader, Deborah Eden Toll. She has written a fantastic book that called me into looking into my own soul, reflecting into the places that sometimes we don't like to journey into but can really be where we find those golden nuggets that illuminate the rest of what we've been searching for. The name of the book is called Luminous Darkness, and she's going to tell us so much about that. So Eden, thank you for being here and for sharing all of the work that you're bringing forward for individuals like myself to really take a step back and look inward and begin to reflect and say that there's so much beauty in every corner of who we are and what we do. Grateful to be here with you, Amber, and just a warm welcome to everyone who's listening. Thank you for that. We have a beautiful community of souls. But before we dive into the book, I really would like to talk about the nonprofit that you have that I learned about once I got onto your website. I was because I learned about you through your book and I was like, oh, this is amazing. But once you really dive into all that you've brought forward, you've done so much throughout your entire lifetime that we could spend days, weeks, months, years just getting to know all the different facets of who you are and what you've brought forward. So we're just going to start with the one little nugget to lead us into that, which is your nonprofit. Um, yeah. Mindful Living Revolution. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So when I was in the transition from having lived as a Zen Buddhist monk in a silent monastery in the wilderness, a unique life experience for about seven and a half years of training, and then moving back out into the world and doing so in the spirit of service and doing so to more widely express the service that was in my heart and help people to bridge, we might say, meditation and what it offers as a practice. And I'm going to say a few things about this on the level of personal, transpersonal and interpersonal, ecological, societal, <laughs> mystical. There's so many dimensions to what an engaged practice is. And so it felt natural to start an organization as I was stepping into greater leadership then in my community to help people touch and bridge all of these dimensions and to recognize something like mindfulness or meditation practice, not just as something that we're doing for our own healing, but for our collective healing and 
really the healing of our relationship with our planet and with each other as well as ourselves. And so this is an organization that offers programs and trainings and retreats and also one-on-one -on -one consultations, also works with organizations in which I've gotten to see beautiful transformation uh, based on these principles. And my second book, Relational Mindfulness, is one of the, the core, we might say, guidance manuals for how we learn to engage uh, with ourselves and with our world in a much more uh, compassionate and freeing way, uh, freeing from conditioning. So it's been beautiful to just see it grow over the years. And right now, as I moved about five years ago to the mountains of North Carolina with my husband from California, we are holding the vision of starting a, a center here and a center that really takes a stand for the intersection between presence and partnership with nature. Because I do feel that in today's modern world, the way we've designed our world and some of the belief systems of the dominant paradigm, very often spiritual practice can become a bit anthropocentric, human-centered, uh, instead of recognizing it as also a path that places us fully, completely, and honestly in our relationship with the, the more than human world. So I'll pause there. All of that sounds so in line with what we're doing through Suivera, that it's a beautiful opportunity for our community to check in to what you have going on to really be a bridge and a supplement. So how would someone learn more about the community that you've built to kind of go hand in hand? Because we don't believe in competition. We believe in alignment and supplementation because no one organization can be everything to everyone. So the more we can learn about these sister organizations and what we do and how we align together, we just know that we can begin to build the type of communities and world that you're speaking of. So how how can others learn more about sure. doing? First, I would just appreciate what you just shared and note that often in our, we have a weekly meditation group, the Fierce Compassion Sangha, and often I'll just pause and invite people to recognize and feel and sense how many other people across the globe at the very same time are practicing, are seeding consciousness, are in, engaged in acts of courage and vulnerability at a time when our world is presenting so much challenge. And so it's really important to remember that we're all doing this together. We're all engaged in this together because otherwise it would feel overwhelming uh, and also be the illusion of isolation. So people can learn more about it on my website, DebraEdenToll.com. And actually our Mindful Living Revolution website is underway of some change and new creation right now, but there's at least a couple of pages there. And there are all kinds of offerings that will give people a sense of how to get involved, whether it's right now, very practically, an online gathering to come to, or a residential retreat to be part of a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Now, I know that you had mentioned this has been part of your life. It isn't as though you hit a stage and suddenly 
you decided, okay, I'm going to go this direction. You grew up in a family that was very centered in creative expression. And then it just was your way of being. Did that play a part in where you are and how you continue to grow and evolve? Sure. I grew up in a family of artists and activists, and I don't take for granted the family and context I grew up in, from my grandparents and great-grandparents to my parents to my siblings, a really creative bunch. And in that creative energy, a really engaged in the world bunch, a really outside the box, free thinker kind of tribe. And that carried light and shadow because sometimes as a young person growing up in the city of LA, I wanted a more quote unquote normal family, but we weren't. My parents were social justice activists. Um, When I was age six, my mom put on pause her work as an artist in response to a really sobering article about the state people were living in in Skid Row, just 20 minutes away from our home. She started her first center there for children, Para Los Niños, and that led to 40 plus years of activism and nonprofit work for her in exploring how to end systemic homelessness, which of course right now is at a peak, especially due to, I would say, corruption. And the thing about it was, it was extraordinary to exist in a community dedicated to service. And just to acknowledge, I would say this today, the heart of service is the most joyful state of being there is. And at the same time, uh, I got to witness a lot of the suffering of our world and open my eyes to that at a really young age. So I always had a, a tender heart sobered by what I was seeing around me. And I knew from a young age that I would be giving myself as many listeners can relate to, to service in some way. I also, in my childhood, um, lost my dad at a young age, very unexpectedly, to uh, a cancer that came pretty ferociously when I was at age 11. And so sort of by the time I was through high school, I just carried a lot of inspiration and inspiration for compassionate leadership, but also grief, uh, personal grief and grief for the shared human experience. And then when I looked around at some of the dominant paradigm or overconsumptive culture of Los Angeles, it felt to me like people were pushing that away or in avoidance or what we now call spiritual bypass. And so I think from a pretty young age, I was like, there's no way I could go in that bypassing direction. Let's roll up our sleeves and get into this. How do we help people bridge our love and pain for our world uh, with a joyful path, a joyful way of being, but really acknowledging that we need to bring our tender hearts to all that is needing healing in the world. To me, what a beautiful way to look at it, because ultimately it is so much easier to pretend that the pain isn't occurring and to really just kind of push it down. But then we know, or at least I personally know what that can do, because it made me sick doing that. Yes, 
Yes. And I think so many people listening can relate. I've been a sustainability educator uh, for as long as I can remember. And I love when, when teaching people about what we call creating a closed cycle on our land or where we live, looking more closely at our relationship to trash and waste. We recognize that there is no such thing as a way. There is no way. We can't push our trash anywhere. Oh, that's a way. And we can't push our unmetabolized grief or pain away. And also that my pain is tethered to yours. It's our collective pain. So I think it's interesting because I do see an important shift happening now in consciousness, whereas for some time, I think there was a strong movement of spiritual practice as both an individual pursuit, something I'm doing for my healing only, and also a way that sometimes people, and they still are, this is just part of the path sometimes, get caught in the victimization or self-absorption of my spiritual work instead of mine as part of our shared spiritual work. Does that make sense? It totally does. And sometimes that's part of the journey because once I've cleared my closet enough, then I can recognize that my closet is in our house. That's a great way to put it. We can really look at it more holistically, but until I've gotten through my own stuff, it's really hard for me to realize that it's connected to a greater whole. Yes, yes. And to, to look at both the individual conditioning we've received that's keeping us from a freer perception and clearer seeing, and also the collective conditioning, just the way that all of the isms in the domain of intersectionality, all of the isms have impacted each of us on some level just even through that lens that i describe as a layer on top of original consciousness that sees through hierarchical perception like superior inferior good bad higher lower even humans higher than nature as a subtle orientation people might not be aware of and i would do want to briefly connect this with the term you use heart leader I love that term. And I think it's such an important time in leadership and more regenerative and holistic forms of leadership emerging for this kind of dissolving of that hierarchical perception to come through so that the leader shows up as they are, I say, to show up naked, to show up in transparency and vulnerability, to show our whole humanness to not be put on a pedestal or feed the pedestal because the pedestal is false and unhelpful. Does that resonate with your experience? It absolutely does. And I've always said when put on a pedestal, the fall is so hard that why would anyone desire to be up there anyway? So it's wonderful when we can say we are all on the same and leaders simply it's dependent on situation. Who is the leader? It's based on skill set, not pedestal, right? And so who goes first? It's the one who has the skills based on heart and mind to lead that charge. And if it's not your skill set, step back and let who does step in. And so to hear you say that, like my heart goes... Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the monastery where I trained, we had a saying, willing to lead, willing to be led. And it was just about willing to act and be used on behalf of life. So when it served life, 
to for you to step into leadership position, even if you didn't want to. That's what you did. And when it served life for you to be led um, and really give yourself to that, that's what you did. But to, I think what we're talking about in a way points to the spirit of living and working as a team and in community and in collaboration. And so maybe another aspect of heart leader is someone who's not standing in the paradigm of separation and individualism and isolation, but someone who's facilitating. To facilitate means to make easier, facilitating teamwork or facilitating community, facilitating interconnection. We could even say on the spiritual level, facilitating we consciousness. Yeah? Yes. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I would like to touch on your discussion around growing up with creativity. Because one of the things that we focused on when I was studying quantum sciences across the board is that creativity is one of the avenues to really connect to conscious expansion. Have you found that to be the case, especially as you're bringing forward all of these amazing books that are helping individuals tap into their own conscious awareness of self and others? Have you found creativity helps that in some way? 100% life force, nature's intelligence is a wildly creative energy. And the more we let ourselves step back from what I'm going to say is a pretty thick layer of conditioning for people to be passive consumers. And what I mean by that is sort of this strange passive consumer way of being that seems to be popular in the modern world, Um, passively consuming entertainment on a screen, passively consuming our own thoughts. That's something I realized pretty quickly when I took up a daily meditation practice. Oh, I've become a passive consumer to my own mind, not questioning and living in creative engagement. Okay, questioning engagement with my mind. So when we are willing to step back from being passive consumers, and really show up in full presence to life, there's more space and there's space for so much more creative energy. And that's creative energy, again, to be used on behalf of life, (laughs) creative energy that can create more and more outside the box than our egos could imagine. So for instance, sometimes people try to control their creativity or say, this is the end goal I'm going for. This is what I want to create. And they don't actually allow themselves, as I talk about in Luminous Darkness, to relax into the darkness, the field of creativity and all possibility. Darkness is the field from which all creativity arises, the empty space that lets life create through us. So I hope I didn't say, uh, I said a big mouthful. For listeners, but I hope some of that made sense. And the relationship between light and dark, which there's so much I say about this in my book, invites us into a more fluid, dynamic, flowing, emergent relationship to creativity, the life force. Yes. And I love, you have a term in your book called endarkenment. 
Are you yes. willing to talk about that term? Because I think it sets such a beautiful tone throughout the entire book. So, Absolutely. Yes, happy to. And I would just say that I had never heard that term before. I was leading a retreat probably in 2018, a silent meditation retreat in the mountains of Santa Cruz. It was the end of the retreat. And on that final evening discussion, someone asked, you know, holding so much grief for the state of our world right now and so deeply questioning how to be of greater service. Uh, how can our meditation practice support us in this? And I have a lot to say about that. But what I heard my, myself say was that I believe it's time for humans to embrace endarkenment alongside enlightenment. And I recognize in my own life that cultivating a deep, reverent, curious relationship with the darkness, the mystery, the unknown has been woven through my path and that darkness has been an equal teacher to light in the on the path of awakening. And so in the book, I describe five aspects of endarkenment, and one is our awakening through embodiment and earth connection. And I'll just talk about these briefly, Amber. I'm okay. just acknowledging that sometimes in our pursuit of enlightenment, there's this kind of up, up and away approach, like let's try to transcend our difficulties or push away the dark, get to the light, or even philosophize our way to enlightenment. I saw that a lot in my early years of practice, and that's not the path. We have to go down into our bodies and earth connection. And the second is about the restoration of our ability to see clearly with the heart by surrendering to receptivity and really taking responsibility for the lens through which we're perceiving. And so just as an example, one lens that's quite popular in today's world is this lens that perceives light as higher than dark and this basic duality that we could explore for hours together if we wanted to that feeds all kinds of harm causing both internally and in our world right the third is about the restoration of our true nature or original consciousness by releasing hierarchical perception and that says more about what I just pointed to. The natural world does not actually model hierarchy. Humans have made it up. Even if we say, oh, but the lion is more powerful on the food chain, which is a term we created. It's a system and a cycle. But then the mouse, it still doesn't mean that the lion has more intrinsic value than the mouse. Does that make sense? Yes, 100%. Yeah. And just a couple more. The fourth is about the deepening of our relationship with ourselves and one another and our intercommunicative relationship with nature, the visible and invisible matrix with life. And this points to something I shared earlier about really letting our spiritual practices today be part of bringing us back to earth consciousness, to Gaia consciousness, not supporting a kind of anthropocentricity that I think many people are not so aware of. And the last being the willingness to meet all of life, including shadows with fierce compassion. And I love this, this one. It, it really points to when we are willing to question our habit of judging and rejecting dark and putting that which we're uncomfortable with or find difficult in the category of dark, we get to 
learn how to turn towards rather than away from everything that has perhaps been put in the category of uncomfortable. And through that, access discomfort, resiliency, access fierce compassion, which is the true nature of the human heart. It's something we all have access to. We get to be so much more resilient and fortified. And so I'm very much a advocate for turning towards with compassion rather than away from what we deem difficult. Yeah. That one in particular, like the whole book is amazing. That chapter, that segment, for me, really, and my heart, even talking about it expands so much because it is one of those things. It's like the moment we become uncomfortable as a society, and I can only speak for myself, but I also see it often with clients. It's like, I don't desire to go there because it's uncomfortable. We gravitate so much toward comfort now, but we don't grow in the comfort. We think about seedlings, right? It is not easy for a seed to burst out of itself and become a tree or a plant, or there's a lot of discomfort that goes through that process, but that's how it grows. That's how it gets to where it is. And it has to come up through the darkness of the soil to get to the sun. Yes. And a few minutes ago, we were talking about creativity. We don't create by staying in our comfort zone. We don't create new possibility or that which our imagination wants to allow to come through us by staying comfortable. And so it's not that we're advocating for call in every form of adversity you can and make that the focus of your practice. But we all know life carries adversity. So it's about seeing it as the spiritual teacher it is when it's here and meeting it as a teacher of love and, and also recognizing that it's not who we really are to turn away. But just like it's not really who we are to perceive through hierarchical perception, original consciousness or so many different traditions use their own language, but true nature, essence authentic self, larger self. Uh, this is a field that welcomes all and welcomes life as it is. It's a, a field of love. And when I say love, I don't mean like the pink heart-shaped box on our car definition of love, or uh, I finally got the relationship I want, end of the rainbow kind of love. We're talking about something much bigger and deeper and that takes many shapes and forms. Can you dive a little deeper into that? Because I do, that's another area. We're talking about darkness and we do have kind of a, a tainted view of what darkness is from what I've discovered. Now, not everyone, but many do put it in an opposition to light instead of seeing it in the yin-yang kind of flow where both are necessary. You know, day, night, darkness is a beautiful thing that gives us reprieve instead of looking at it in that way. It's like, oh, don't look at the shadow. How do you see love not being necessarily viewed as the depth of what it is, much like darkness not being viewed to the depth that it can offer as well? We've Hallmark kind of put it into that box versus the multifaceted it is. How have you seen that? 
Well, first, I would set this framework. And this is something that kind of when people maybe first come to a meditation practice, they might have this realization, a recognition of, oh, huh, so many of us have been conditioned to seek love or fulfillment or wholeness through externals, through something outside of us, which affirms a misconception that as we are, we are not whole, that as we are, we are lacking and we need to seek through externals. Experiences, sometimes the substances, the relationships, the whatever it is out there that's going to fulfill us. And as soon as one begins, let's say, a, a daily meditation practice or really starts returning to presence, there's a recognition and remembrance of that which is already whole, that which is already whole. And then we can still engage in the externals. The relationship, I tend to say, becomes not the cake, but the icing on the cake. One's relationship with oneself, with life, is the cake. <laughs> but our understanding changes. And in that, there's a way that we're no longer, again, I'll use the word passive consumers, sort of looking for love out there. We might get it, we might not. But we recognize our, as an expression of passionate responsibility, that everything that happens in life, every experience is a teacher of love and an invitation to meet life with love. And so it's as a palpable, tangible example in my growth with this. You know, when I moved to the monastery and I share in the book about how I may have expected at the age of 26 when I got there to just drop into this deeply peaceful experience. And instead, a bunch of my shadows, things I had pushed away, grief and anger, which I didn't even know I had, sort of rose right to the surface. So I was like, okay, here I am. <laughs> uh, we talk about the wisdom of no escape in practice. There was nowhere to go. There was no, no distractions offered to a monk practicing in the silence. And so I got to really turn towards and with curiosity and willingness inquire into that these shadows, these things I had perceived as demons, and actually found instead that Number one, uh, they weren't what I had thought, uh, that they were what I call today sacred messengers and aspects of me that when reclaimed gave me much more power, much more strength, much more joy, much more full expression of who I am. Is this making sense so far? Yes. And then following that experience, I had a really challenging experience of getting bit by a tick and not knowing it. So for about a decade, starting in that time, I navigated the ups and downs of having Lyme. And some listeners can relate very much to that mysterious or chronic illness experience. But from the start, I recognized that it was a teacher. And so as difficult as it was, knocking me down completely sometimes and really <laughs> getting in the way of what my ego wanted for me. Ego wanted me to be energetic and to look a certain way and to be meeting certain standards. And with Lyme, no, that wasn't going to happen. Instead, I got to really embrace what is the teacher of this particular adverse experience that is mind-blowing and literally taking me out of my mind's understanding into a much deeper field. 
of understanding and embodiment. So there's plenty I could say about that, but I'll just pause there and, and also invite listeners to just check in with what experiences have you had of meeting the unknown, meeting adversity, meeting shadow that have actually absolutely fortified you because you've been willing to meet that, right? Yeah. And I know the name of your book has purpose. Everything in that book has purpose. As you read it, there's not a line in it that seems like it is a throwaway line that is just there as filler. And that includes the name. Why is it called Luminous Darkness? So the book touches, and I teach in a very experiential way and and include practices and inquiry. So it's not really something we can understand through the rational mind, which is one of the points of endarkment. We can't understand the mystery with the rational mind. But the book touches many dimensions of darkness. And just as a starting point, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary literally defines darkness as the absence of light. How wildly limited is that, right? The absence of light, light is on the pedestal. And yet we look to nature, as you shared, and nature models the innate value of both and the sacred dynamic interplay of both. So there is a section in the book on working with emotional darkness or emotions we deem dark and darkness or unknown of global uncertainty and the state of our world. But I really emphasize that throughout history, wisdom traditions across the earth have celebrated darkness as uh, a consciousness, metaphoric, physical, symbolic darkness that has been a true medicine and instigator of spiritual growth. So even going to nature as our example, thinking of darkness, the dark of night, as the yin, restorative, slow, still aspect of nature, compared to the yang, bright lights, active, productive, we need both and we need to celebrate both. Yet the dominant paradigm does tend to overvalue productivity, why so many people are exhausted and busy, caught up on their never-ending to-do list. <laughs> and also, if we look deeper, we recognize that darkness, and I'm talking about elemental darkness, is the field of all possibility. It's the spacious, fertile, luminous field from which everything arises, all light, and to which everything returns. So this field from which all possibility, all vision, all creativity, all form arises. But in today's world, many people are pretty caught in form and on just the limitations of what we see rather than the field also from which it emerges. Does that give you some sense of luminous darkness? It does. And again, I'll go back to the quantum nature of it. Even in that, dark matter is the largest amount of space that exists. And it is dark matter. It doesn't have the light. It isn't as though what we have is light matter that is everywhere. It is dark matter. 
Yes, and my understanding is it's also dark matter in that it is still a complete mystery to science. They don't actually know what it is, even though it comprises the bulk of the universe. And so really reconsidering how we relate with the mystery, the unknown, and live in more harmony with the unknown and the yin and yang it contains. There's so much possibility. I, I think I've been really delighted by how much this book has been resonating with people and people of different walks of life, because I suspect even five years ago, there would have been some more resistance to it, but that given we're facing such unknown times together, and given how much some of how people perceive the world or some of our systems have been turned upside down a bit in recent years, I think there's an opportunity to align to a more wise relationship to the mystery. Yeah. Yeah. And for someone who reads this book and is like, okay, this is great. Eden, you've cracked me wide open. Now what do I do? Because I'm going in, I'm exploring all of these spaces within myself with compassion, but I don't know how to do this on my own. What would you advise them? Because I know often that is the next question that we get is, okay, great. Now, what do I do? Thank you. So first, just affirming that the book itself is one you can spend some time with because it offers practices and inquiry. And on my website, there are further practices and ways you can go deeper. But going back to something you and I touched on early in this conversation, community. We have a phrase in Buddhist practice, kalyanamita, spiritual friendship. We all need spiritual friends as we navigate the unknown and as we deepen our embodiment of remembered ways of being. So what I mean by that is just by being on the spiritual path, ultimately we're invited to let go of the familiar shore, the known and the set fixed sense of self we might have held, and to venture out not yet seeing the shore where we will land. And so it's that fertile darkness in between where we remember other forms of knowing and a deeper wisdom. And so having spiritual friends as we do that is really important. And so for instance, I mentioned my weekly meditation group and our Mindful Living Revolution community. I know there's a beautiful community of people that you are part of and guide. We all need community as we age in this way. Yeah. Agreed. And you had mentioned that you have a heart-centered coursework that you've created. And I don't know if you've started or it's a continual course. Can you touch on that a bit? Sure. Yeah, there's still some space in our next six-month part of listening training and mentorship. It begins in February this in 2023. And this is a training and mentorship that has evolved through me over the past 10 years. And it's extraordinary. It's based on the acknowledgement that deep listening as a way of life, that embodied listening is really the core of how we access wisdom in our personal lives, in our leadership, 
it recognizes that there are ways for people to lead and also to be part of learning communities together that affirm shared power rather than power over that affirm power with and you and i touched on this earlier in this session these are expressions of relational intelligence that we so deeply need to remember in today's world if we're going to move forth with some wisdom through the challenges we face there's a lot more I could say about it. It's a program that's really both for personal transformation and for leadership. And it's been, um, it's just one of the loves of my life. And so for anyone interested, you can find information on my website and the next training begins in February. Wonderful. And your website is your name, right? DebraEdenTool.com? You've got it. DebraEdenTool.com. Yes. Okay. And it is, I mean, you've got your books on there, you've got your courses, you have some coaching that you offer as well. Right now, I think we have quite a waiting list for one-on-ones, but I also do work with organizations. And I'll just name that one of the ways I work with organizations is my second book, Relational Mindfulness. A handbook for deepening our connection with ourselves, each other, and our planet. It offers nine principles for how we embody relational intelligence, how we show up really using all of life as our meditation. It's not something we do on the cushion and then go to do our marketing and pay our bills. <laughs> we can be in meditation all the time. And it's been really powerful to, to witness different organizations or nonprofits, businesses take on these principles to create a more, we might say, um, conscious and compassionate and courageous community, right? So people can definitely check that book out as well. Do you mind touching on your first book? Sure. Yeah. My first book, The Natural Kitchen, Your Guide to the Sustainable Food Revolution. And it's fun. I'll share just with listeners that Luminous Darkness is the first time I wrote a book that this vision came through me and I actually presented a proposal and Shambhala said yes and we did it. Both of my other books I was uh, invited to write. So when I moved from the monastery to the megatropolis of Los Angeles to um, uh, first work on Healing Lyme, and also really ultimately to, to be of more service or service in a different way. It was at a time when my long-term love for sustainable agriculture and permaculture and ecological design was becoming a little more alive in the world, right? A shift was occurring and I was so grateful. So I was regularly teaching organic gardening and permaculture workshops and sustainable kitchen <laughs> workshops and so someone, a publisher asked me to write that book then, and it was truly fun. And for those of you who have a meditation practice, it's also about mindful eating. And some years later, I had had this kind of idea for a book about relational mindfulness in my heart, but I didn't know when or where the energy would come from. You know, I was still navigating Lyme and teaching and having a full life. And I was a presenter 
at an international Dharma teachers gathering in New York, the Omega Institute. And at the very end of that presentation, I remember it was a presentation for me that took courage because I was somewhat intimidated by the audience and so many of my elder teachers in the Dharma world. And at the very end, uh, someone from Wisdom Publications came right up to me and said, I want to do a book with you. And I said, I have one. So it's really fun when we allow more space and when we're, again, willing to lead, willing to be led, that life will use us in exactly the ways that we're here to be used, that our gifts and medicine align with. And we don't have to make it happen like so many people think we have to. We have to control it and make it happen and manifest it. Sometimes we just have to rest in the magnetic field of our receptivity and be clear in our intention and our medicine and life will use us. That has been my experience again and again and again. And I just want to affirm for listeners, you know, sometimes people will say, oh, you've written three books and you've started a nonprofit and you've, you know, I don't even think of it that way. I've just opened my heart to being of service. And I did so while still navigating the healing of a chronic illness and the experience of not having a lot of resources. You know, you don't leave a silent monastery with big bank accounts. And um, what served me, so this is something I want to offer to listeners, was that I have a deep practice of not listening to the mind of limitation, not listening to the mind of limitation. And this is something we need in our world right now, more people and more leaders to take responsibility for that. And just going back to something we talked about in the early part of this conversation about creativity and the family I came from, from a family of creatives and free thinkers, I did get to see that modeled for me. I didn't recognize it till later, but oh, they were all acting without following the mind of limitation. <laughs> they were saying, I'm here to be a poet. So even though this world says you can't be a poet for life and pay the bills, this is what I'm doing. Or I'm here to start for nonprofits uh, in service to social justice work and even though I've never done this before, I trust life will show me the way. So I hope listeners will take something from that because we, we do need more of it in an age when there's such thick conditioning towards limitation. Yeah. I am in awe of hearing you say that. Yes, yes, yes. It's that trusting and allowing you know, we feel so much like the pressure from the external determines our direction. But as you've said so clearly, if we allow our lives to go with the flow of the universe, then it's not the outside pressure of this reality directing us. It's our oneness with all things. The universe will put us in alignment. So unlimited possibility. Yeah. And I'm going to suggest that it really has a lot to do again with deep listening, because if we are in the habit of shallow listening or literally listening to and giving our attention to the mind of limitation, the mind of habit, the mind of comfort zone, and the mind of small self, a very self-referencing small bubble self, and when we drop into deep listening, which is the practice, we're listening to life as it unfolds. And the way I talk about it in Luminous Darkness, we're, we're listening 
in conversation with the cosmos and saying, hey, I'm giving myself as a participant and in service here rather than feeding small self. So this is really, um, that statement affirms the remembrance that our personal awakening is completely tied to collective awakening and that we do our work, uh, not just for our own self-healing, but for the whole, supported by the whole, called forth by the whole. We can't really access the energy required for waking up any other way. Yeah. So in our last few moments here that we have together, for those who this is their first step toward having compassion for themselves as they navigate into exploring the uncomfortable, what would you recommend as their first steps? Would it be the book? Would it be exploring the site? Where would you recommend they take their first steps if this is their first step? Thank you. I recommend that people pick up a copy of Luminous Darkness because it does guide you in a process, as does relational mindfulness. Uh, It really gives you the experiences and questions to reflect on for deepening this compassion, both the gentle and the fierce compassion. And I would also just say that, you know, it can be an interesting exercise from time to time to kind of just reflect on, maybe even to draw a big circle on a piece of paper and place inside the circle sort of what are all the things, the aspects of me, the aspects of the world that, that I'm in full acceptance of, that I'm peace with, and what's on the outside of that, just to take a kind of personal inventory. What have I not brought into my circle of compassion, of acceptance? And just to gently take a look at that and see. And then as you practice deep and see how that changes and grows. And the last thing I'll say about that is acceptance has nothing to do with complacency or resignation or stagnation. Not a thing, nothing at all. It's just that it's a place we come to when we open our hearts to everything, the light, the dark everything in between that then positions us to take action from a deeper wiser place okay not a place of resisting what is yeah yes 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 so to pick up a copy of your book where can they get it thank you people can find my book through shambhala through amazon through hopefully your local book retailer i would like to give a shout out for anyone for whom the book resonates consider posting a short review on Amazon. This is not something I ever uh, would have suggested in the past that I would be sending someone to Amazon. But to be honest, folks, it so deeply supports a new book. So I'm happy to advocate for (laughs) book reviews now. Amazon really has become a wonderful means to get the word out. So yeah, this is true. This is true. Well, Well, thank you very much for taking the time to meet with our community, to share all that you've brought forward, and to give such wonderful words of wisdom. Thank you. I've had such a fun time stirring the pot with you and touching on the topics we touch. So much gratitude. And we'll make sure that there are links everywhere. So anyone who would like to get a copy of the book, 
and get to your website quickly. It's just one click for anyone who is listening and doesn't have quick access. Do you mind spelling out your website? Because Deborah can be spelled multiple ways. Thank you. D-E-B-O-R-A-H-E-D-E-N-T-U-L-L.com. So Deborah Eden Tull. And in the future, if I create another website or email address, I will go for shorter. (laughs) But right now, both my website and email address are quite long. (laughs) It's quite all right because it's one click, right? Yeah, there you go. That's all it takes. Awesome. And thank you, amazing Suivera community, for being here and listening to the Heart Leader podcast. Oh, and our mind align. We are very, very focused on what it means to be ourselves, dive into our authentic nature in this entire month of January. No need to reinvent ourselves just to really get in touch with who we are and that authenticity. And as Eden really discussed, there are multiple aspects to that, not just the comfortable side, but also that wonderful aspect of getting to know all of us, even some of that that isn't always comfortable because it makes us stronger. So take time. We always offer free tools. You can find those as well out in the wonderful Suivera community. We'll provide a link for that. And until next time, I look forward to seeing you out in that community. Thank you for listening to the Heart Leader Podcast. Are you ready to start leading from the heart? Visit theheartleaderpodcast.com to take our quiz and get your personalized roadmap for a happier and healthier life. Remember to follow the podcast so you never miss a new episode and be sure to recommend it to your friends who might enjoy it with you. See you next week.